Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A word of warning. This podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. And welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather, and today I am joined for a very special episode with one of my really lovely, wonderful friends, Gemma. Now, Gemma is the founder of Bloom Wellbeing, which is a counseling support service for human beings of all ages. And Gemma has a background in trauma informed counseling as well. So, welcome, Gemma. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a really nice opportunity to connect with everyone. I'm so happy to have you here today. So I messaged you and I said, I think we should take this opportunity to talk about counseling. There's a lot going on in the world right now. And, you know, we were just speaking before we started recording as well about people who might not identify as survivors in Melbourne, for example, we're going through extended lockdowns. Um, Mental health is something a lot of people are starting to talk about more and, there is a gap in accessing some services. So I thought we could have a chat today, get rid of some of the myths and talk about what seeking counselling and seeking support actually looks like. Yeah, and I'm really excited to start busting some of those myths because I think uh, it's had such a really big stigma around mental health for such a long time and I think you're right, it is starting to shift. I don't think we're there yet in terms of being amazing around talking about mental health but I think that slowly but surely we're starting to see some shifts. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited to start talking about it. But do you mind sure. giving an introduction into, into what you do um, and, and how that, that looks for somebody who might be accessing counselling support or who might have identified that they're at a point in their life where they might need to talk to somebody? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So my background has primarily been in providing um, specialist sexual assault and family violence counselling for individuals, families. Um, That ranges from really young children all the way through to older adults. Um, What that looks like at the moment is I've got my private practice that I work in four days a week. Uh, I see a range of different presentations 
So that could look like people who are presenting with concerns around anxiety or depression um, all the way through to people who are seeking support around family violence or sexual assault, um, that it's such a big spectrum. In terms of what it actually looks like, um, to break it down to that level, it's really as simple um, for me at least as reaching out and just requesting some support uh, and then we go through the process of am I the right fit for you? And that's very much led by the client because I think that that's, for me, that's something really important. I don't want people to book in a full one-hour appointment that they have to pay for to find out that I'm not the right fit for them. Um, so I offer everyone a free introductory um, phone appointment for 15 minutes. And I've seen a few therapists um, since I started advertising that are including that in what they offer. So I hope to see that shifting a bit, giving back a bit of control to uh, the clients who are seeking support. And then in terms of what it looks like when people come into the physical room, it can be so different for everybody. There's some people... Um, that I would do walk and talks with. So what that can look like is going out in nature and going for a walk while we have our um, session in a confidential place. Um, for other people, it's sitting outside in our garden and enjoying that um, space to have our session. Other people, it's being in a safe environment. Um, I've got my certified therapy dog, Dexter, so he brings a lot to the room in what he offers. Uh, for kids, it's a lot of play-based stuff, not a lot of talking. I, I guess the main thing is that it's driven by what the client needs. It's not set by me. Yeah, and I think that's really wonderful. And I think what, maybe I'll loop in some of the questions in because I think you've raised some of them, which is really good. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day and they were saying they don't know what they need. And I think yeah. that's a really good point to go, okay, you don't need to know what you need. It might not be counselling, but a counsellor could help you identify those things the same way a GP could. Is that kind of the thing, a thing as well that you find yourself doing is referring on to different services or identifying some key places that might be beneficial? Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's a very common presentation that people, um, will come into the service and they're like, I don't really know what I want. I don't know what my goals are, but I know that there's something missing. Um, So I think if you're working with a therapist who is holistic, that that's the way that they would be working is that we want to support you to live the best life possible. So um, is it about connecting in with other support services? Is it about just connecting more within your community? Is it about supports as in friendships? Um, Is it about different professionals that you need in your life? Uh, So we can help, I guess, hold space for you while you a client referred to it once as like all these knitting balls of wool are all tangled and we kind of like sit with you while you untangle them, um, which I think is a really beautiful analogy and way to visualise what therapy is all about. Um, We're not doing it for people. We're sitting with you in that space while people do that. Yeah, and I think that's a really common potential myth. I don't know if you've written that down as one, is that presentation where you're sitting down on a chair and the um, client is laying back and you're having those moments when you're, you know, they ask you a prompting question like, oh, this must be about your father or your mother or something, (laughs) (laughs) something like that. And it just doesn't sound like that's actually what therapy is at all. Yeah, definitely. Or even that it's dictated by the therapist. And look, I'm sure there are therapists out there that operate that way. 
Um, but I guess one of the points I had written down in terms of myths is that you often, I guess, there's this perceived idea that you have to do whatever your therapist says and actually you have rights and you have options and you are allowed to interview your therapist and it encourage you to interview your therapist. So before you engage with somebody new, ask them loads of questions. If they can't hack the questions that you're asking them, they're probably not the right fit for you. Um, and that everybody is entitled to ask those questions and have them answered. So if you want to know, for example, um, how are you going to support me? In what way are you going to tell me what to do? That's not the way that I work. I don't, um, I don't work in a very prescriptive or directive way. Obviously, if people came to me and said, um, I don't have goals, I'm not going to sit there and be like, hmm, me either. <laughs> so I'm going to give you support where you're at. But I'm not going to say, uh, if somebody asks me, should I take this job or should I, you know, end my marriage, I'm not going to answer it with a simple yes or no. There's always going to be a conversation and it's going to be about giving you back that power to make that decision for yourself because it's not about me deciding for you. It's about you feeling confident enough in your own decision. So, yeah, that's definitely a big myth, I think. Absolutely. But I love that. And I think that's so common where people can even come to friends or something and say, I don't know if I should break up with him, but there's something behind that, that yeah. maybe a reason you're holding on to a relationship that you know you're not happy in or um, a reason that you're seeking this help in the first place. Um, and I think that's really wonderful to hold that space and support. I guess it's also great to be able to say, we can help you identify your goals. Your goals may yeah. be you know, you're suffering from, and we were just talking about this before, um, your presentation might be, I have anxiety and depression. You might unpack that and there's actually some trauma behind then, And then you yes. can build out goals from that. Yes. Yeah. And that, I think that's also really common that people will say, I'm not sure what is happening, but this is the impacts. Okay. Let's start there. And that's where I would commonly start. I don't, um, ask people to start where the trauma is. I ask them to start with where are the impacts in your life because that is going to give us, uh, I guess, some tools to work with around, okay, this is what we're seeing. So how can we support you to shift some of this stuff? Is this deeper? Does this belong to something else that we need to work through? Or is this actually just something that you need some strategies with? What are some other myths that you have um, that you've heard or that are commonly coming to you through your work that you have to be yeah. like, come on guys. No. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, there's so many. I feel like we could have a separate podcast just for that. Um, I guess I kind of focus some of my, I, I just tried to jot down a couple before today. Uh, I've kind of focused them really around the sexual assault space. Just keeping in mind what your audience might be. Um, I think a common one, and I think this came through in the questions as well was around that, um, my experience wasn't bad enough or there is somebody out there who has it worse than I do or um, something about um, your story being less than or not enough, I guess. Um, and that, that's a very common experience. We, we see that coming through quite a lot, particularly when I was in a specialist sexual assault counselling agency. Um, something that I like to talk to clients about from there is we're actually conditioned from a very, very young age to feel like we are less than, particularly for people who are born into bodies that identify as female. So 
there's this conditioning that we are constantly less than. So therefore that also filters out into our experiences of sexual assault. Um, so something we might hear is uh, unless I was raped that I'm not, I, I didn't have a legitimate experience of sexual assault or because I wasn't raped, I shouldn't be impacted by this. Um, and I don't understand why it's still impacting me. Uh, it's impacting you because you had an experience of sexual assault and that sexual assault ex- exists on a spectrum or a continuum. So from grooming and sexual harassment, like catcalling in the street, that sits on the, the continuum of sexual assault. That is, by definition, a sexual assault. So somebody catcalling you on the street, which is so accepted, like that's just something that we are used to happening, but that could happen on a weekly basis, right, for people living particularly in the city through to what we know as rape, right? But there is no less than or worse than or that it is categorised in the legal system, which is, I think, just another system that further undermines people's experiences of sexual assault. And they have to, I guess, scale it in a way because there has to be a scaled um, distribution of punishments for the crime so obviously rape gets a higher sentence than catcalling which might not even be investigated um you know for example uh but it doesn't actually mean the impact on you is any less than um and so something that's really common uh one of my colleagues incredible woman who's worked in the sexual assault space for a very long time um She's run a million trainings for lots of different professionals and people and something that she has commonly talked about is that every single time she runs these trainings and she explains the sexual assault continuum, um, people just have these light bulb moments of like, oh, wow, (laughs) I didn't realise that that was actually considered sexual assault. And then she asks everybody in the room and predominantly, you know, the helping industry is female-dominated. She will say, is there anybody in this room who hasn't experienced sexual assault now that I've defined what the continuum is? And there's not a single person that can raise their hand. Um, So, you know, the stats around sexual assault rapes are one in three women but if we broaden that out to an entire continuum of what is included in sexual assault I would hazard a guess that there is not many people that could say they haven't experienced sexual assault particularly if they identify in a female body. You know what seems to somebody to be maybe different and when you do compare because we say don't compare but you know Mm. You can't say that because it's natural. Yeah. It's natural to do that to a degree. So I understand that. But when you compare it as well, even in those other flipping back mindsets, I think it's important to say that it doesn't really matter what you think. Is this impacting the person? Like, like you just said, it could be somebody that screamed at somebody and cat called them on the street. And we would all kind of say, oh, you know, we've all experienced that. Something might have really hurt somebody's feelings or triggered them in a way that's really caused them trauma and has really hurt them. And it's not up to us to decide whether that's justified or not. It's up to us to change the way that we look at things in a way that allows people who are having a response to anything to feel justified in that and to want and feel okay with seeking help. 
Because the most important part really around any disclosure of sexual assault is actually just hearing and believing that person. That is the most powerful thing you can do, whether you're a colleague, whether you're a parent, whether like it doesn't matter who you are, if your child discloses to you, we know that like it's such a huge percentage in terms of the um the long-term impact that that has on that young person or child that they will have tenfold better outcomes because they were seen and heard and believed. If people are not seen, heard or believed, no matter what their age, the impact is then going to be just another layer on top of the sexual assault itself. So it is incredibly important that we hear and believe people when they disclose, no matter what our experience of that is, um, yeah. like you said. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so true. I've had so many survivors come onto this podcast and say basically that, that, you know, they've, they've learned to accept and heal from, from the assaults itself, but it was the aftermath and the people that didn't believe them um, or the people in positions of power afterwards who really have caused the ongoing damage. Is that something in your experience as well, maybe that people are coming for help with the sexual assault, not realizing maybe that the aftermath is something that's caused them trauma as well? Yeah, definitely. That's that's often a huge um, factor and, and people might present with that before they present with the processing of the actual traumatic event. And I guess what's really important that we haven't named so far is probably because you and I know that it's intrinsic to sexual assault, but to name is that sexual assault is never, ever about a sexual act. It's about power and control. And so if we look at, again, that continuum of sexual assault, it doesn't matter whether it's being catcalled on the street and sexually harassed or being experiencing rape or a penetration because what is actually happening is somebody else is attempting to avert power and control over another individual. So when uh, we're not believed or when we're not seen or heard or understood and we don't have those experiences, it's another level of that power and control being overted on us. And it's it's this, um, if you can kind of imagine like, this is somebody trying to break out of being squashed by the power and control and they finally break out and they tell somebody and then they just get pushed down again. Like how many times can you continually rise up? And for some people that, that is the only time that they can do it. And for some people even just being able to disclose once is too much. They can't do that. Um, and the average age we know is like <laughs> mid-40s. Um, for most people in terms of disclosure. So it is so incredibly important. It's probably the most important thing that you can do is to hear and believe somebody because, like you said, that's often what they present for with counselling is my family weren't able to support me because it was too much for them to hold or my family didn't believe me because how could it possibly be that person because that person's so kind and nice. Um, and again, that leads back to grooming. Yeah. And I think it was um, really insightful. There was a study done in the Royal Commission that came out of, uh, in Victoria, there was a Royal Commission into institutionalized child sexual abuse. And yeah. what came out of that was that on average, I think it was 35 or 45 years that it took for people to disclose what happened to them. And I think yeah. you're right in in saying exactly that, you know, in the institutional setting as well, 
they're obviously told on a consistent basis and groomed that they're not believed. So they're taking with this, this with them for their entire lives. And the first time they're speaking up about it is 45 years after the event. Um, and that's so long to hold on to trauma in your heart and to try and live a, a really successful and happy life with having that. Most people say that they haven't been able to, that there has been something for their whole life that clouds them. You know, there's plenty of people that I have seen into their late, late adulthood who are disclosing for the very first time and they've never told anybody in their family. And that's a huge, huge burden to carry. And again, if we think about those overlays, power and control, the other overlay is silence. So when uh, perpetrators perpetrate sexual assault, that they often as part of the grooming process will coerce the victim survivors into silence or will threaten them in a way that induces that silence. And then by not being believed or heard or seen, again, it's that another silencing layer. And what it is is a parallel process of the abuse. And it sounds like it's got a lot of parallels to coercive control in domestic abuse relationships as well. So would you say that maybe like child, like grooming is more of a term that we utilize towards children, but um, the layers of that maybe become more complex, but similarly presented over maybe a a spousal relationship? Mm, It's an interesting question. I don't think I've thought about that before, but um, I don't know that I would necessarily just use grooming with children. I think I would use it um, generally with anybody of any age, but I guess I would use it n- normally more to the confines of sexual assault um, and I would use coercive control as a way to kind of highlight the family violence, which is that there is definitely overlays but there is um, distinguishing factors between sexual assault and family violence. So I would use grooming for people of all ages um, And for me, it would define the behaviour that is used as a way of being able to perpetrate that power and control over somebody in the context of sexual abuse. I don't know if that's actually like um, the proper definition, but that's how I would normally use it. So where my mind's going as we're discussing it is I've never really heard grooming being utilised in the sense of, you know, an adult relationship so much. I always Mm -hmm. hear it utilised towards children, but you are right and it, it, these are all topics that have gray overlaps with each other, you know, because we're talking about power and control and that dynamic, which kind of is that umbrella over the top of everything. Um, But then you've got, yeah, the grooming, you've got isolation from domestic violence, and then you overlay what consent is above all of that. And and then you've got a very complex diagram that is not always black or white. (laughs) (laughs) definitely like consent is black and white but how it interplays with everything yeah it it is very complex absolutely and I think one of the things I had a discussion with the other day just regarding consent because we just named it was you know coercion and consent and I think it's the blending of those two terms that you need to be quite clear on um, that a lot of people unfortunately aren't I will make it very clear now that coercing or manipulating or or suggesting or or not accepting somebody's no in the beginning and pushing them towards a yes is not consent. Not yet. Um, Yeah. The final thing is, did this person come to the decision of wanting to be in the act with you of their own free will? And if you've had to push in any way, then that's a no, which means not consent. Yeah. 
And the thing that we often talk about, I guess, in the, the sexual assault space is did they feel free to say no? Are there going to be repercussions for saying no? So even if you didn't actively coerce them or do something in that na- of that nature, do they feel free to say no? <laughs> Does this person actually, are they ever able to use their no? And if they aren't, then they haven't actually given you a yes. Absolutely. And I think it's it comes down to a lot of um, myths, I guess, as well around the reactions that you're going to have in a situation of sexual assault. Um, yeah. Interestingly, I heard a podcast the other day which detailed that the pool of subjects for the 1930s or whatever experiment that was done on responses to a threat were all men. So 100% yeah. was men. And the <laughs> yeah. responses that they saw to a physical kind of threat was fight or flight. Yeah. And they've yeah. looped that in with anatomy and physiology um, when I did my subjects with your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system responses, which is interesting as well. But in listening to this podcast, it was interesting to hear that you can't, it's the gender data gap. We've not yeah. done any data on women because they weren't a part of the pool, but this has now become a part of public knowledge. But now if you speak to people like yourself or, you know, I consider myself being more informed on it because I talk to survivors about this all the time is that I'm going to hazard a guess here. This is not statistically significant, but I'm going to hazard a guess here to say at least over 90% of specifically women or female bodied humans who have experienced an assault respond in either compliance or freezing i'm going to say i'm hazarding a guess at 90 percent there because i don't know many people who who ever would respond to a physical presence of a threat with running unless they can or fighting back because we physically can't so that's my interpretation i I can remember i can remember you you kathy Audie and I actually having a chat about this not that long ago. Um, and so the, the words that we use in the sexual assault space is the fight and flight, yes, everyone knows those two, but the other two is around freeze and appease. And I like appease because it's not um, submit, which it used to be. Um, it's appease. It's like having to participate in an act purely from a point of survival. Um, and I think that's one that is often forgot uh, because sometimes maybe freeze is coming more into mainstream understanding, but I don't know that a appease gets there. Yes. Um, so often that is a really big revelation when I talk to people about their experiences of sexual assault and actually normalise that the way that their brain chose for them to react, not them choosing to react, but the way their brain chose for them to react is actually normal and that it is um, a way that the brain had decided to stay alive, that there's nothing wrong with them, that they didn't give consent because they appeased the perpetrator. That is not at all what happened. It was a survival response and that your body was responding in the best way it knew how to stay alive. And it did a freaking great job because you're still alive. (laughs) And for so many people, that is such a huge relief because they carry around guilt and shame. That was I responsible because I participated. It was not participation. You were appeasing a person who held a position of power and control over you. 
And um, yes, I think that that's very important. If you couldn't tell from my tone. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it is. It's so true though. And I think that's an important thing to call out. And you've said appease, I've said comply on Instagram and stuff. I've seen a lot of people calling it fawn. I don't like fawn. I I think fawn implies a level of submission. Yeah, submission and fragility. Um, I like comply because in the terms of like somebody holding a gun to your face and you just giving them your handbag, that means to me quite makes sense. But appeasing is as well something that has a lot of relevance in the way that you interpret it. And I think what Mm -hmm. I would say as well to to what you just said and highlighting Mm -hmm. how important that is to say that it's their response, it is a survival response, We are made up of so many different neural pathways in our brains and all of those experiences that we've had throughout our life. So from the cat calling to the physical intimidation by other people to our own individual experiences have all given us an internal clock, an internal trigger that tells us what to do. And it's not an uninformed response. Your response at the moment is taking in all of the triggers around you. It's taking in, you know, my environment, your environment, the presence of the figure. Is there a weapon present? Is there a way out? Um, You know, what's the temperature in the room? And it's making these dense and life-changing decisions in microseconds that you're not conscious of based on your life experience. And that's what, you know, say an SAS person, somebody in the special forces would train for 15 years to train out of their minds because this is an intrinsic thing. And I think it's, it's often characterized as a weakness that you've, you know, appeased Mm. somebody. It's not a weakness Mm. because that is probably the only way that your brain knew that it would survive that situation. If anything, it is the strongest way to respond to something and the most intelligent way to respond to something to know I'm going to have to shift my thing here. I'm going to have to smile. I'm going to have to pretend I'm going to have to do this and I'm going to have to do that. It is an incredibly strong and incredibly difficult response, but it's, it's not invalid. And it's not something that you have control over, exactly like you said. For how many years, particularly female-bodied people, have we been conditioned to believe that we don't own our bodies and that other people have rights to our bodies or they that we have to please other people? Um, you know, like that could be from, like essentially we've been societally conditioned to understand people violating our boundaries of our body is normal from zero, from Uncle Frank who inappropriately touches you on the bottom and tells you to sit on his lap, <laughs> sexual assault. Um, but it's framed in society as, oh, but that's just creepy Uncle Frank and he does whatever he wants and, you know, like that that's not a problem. You know, we all deal with him. He's fine. He's harmless. He just likes to grope children. Like he's fine. No, 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 no. Uncle Frank is perpetrating sexual assault and his entire system and family around him are so groomed that they can't see or they can see that what is happening is actually he has groomed everybody into being okay with his 
um, societally approved sexual assault of children or other family members. So if we if we think about our history and what is actually um, involved in our conditioning from a very young age, it's any wonder that we also take these pathways because if that's been our experience that we don't actually get to choose whether we're going to hug that person we don't want to hug or if we've had to be in relationships that we don't feel safe in because we feel like it's going to cause too much risk if we were to leave or if it is um, I need to do this because of X, Y and Z, that we make these subconscious choices to survive (laughs) and it's purely about survival. Yeah, and I think it's a really good segue into the responses and how important it is to respond when you are an adult who is listening to this and seeing this type of behavior. And I think to give context to that, I mean, today um, is the 17th of September, uh, 2021. And today I started to see all of those videos coming through from Simone Biles and the other survivors of uh, Larry Nassar. And they were doing a response or report on um, the responses from the FBI in the wake of Yes. Um, the allegations that became. And it was really, really wonderful to see uh, one of the survivors come forward and say, you know, you knew and you allowed it. And it, they knew a lot of things. And and the and it's not just the FBI that were accountable for this, but they also knew things too. But to say there were adults who knew yeah. he was doing this and they allowed it to happen. They thought, look, I just don't want to get involved. I don't know enough. I'm just going to push him onto another yeah. thing. And I think, you know, you you turn back to so many different cases of institutionalised child sexual abuse within the churches or within different areas or even within my own family. There was a disclosure yeah. in my family of someone who was staying with their, uh, with a family friend um, yeah. and was living with them for a period of time and the father in the in the would come in and he would masturbate while she was in the shower. Yeah. Now he didn't touch her. That doesn't mean that that's not a sexual assault and that doesn't mean that this is yeah. something that we should not be protecting a child from because she was a child at the time. And there were yeah. family members and people in my close circle whose response was it's not our business. It's not for us to get involved in. And I think mm. that's the thing that we need to start talking about. It is all of our responsibility as people who are over the age of 18 to respond as, yeah. as, as adults and not be scared to call the police on somebody or to call child yeah. services on somebody. Yeah. And my question is always, if it's not your responsibility, whose is it? Because uh, everybody is probably having a similar thought. And if nobody acts, where is the safety for these children? Um I guess something that I also have found that's very common um, for parents is that they don't want to do the wrong thing. Uh, and I, I think that that's uh, is perfectly understandable because we have grown up in this world where, like, parents are shamed for the way that they respond to things. Um, so I guess what I would say to any parent, if they thought that this had happened for one of their children, is really just trying to avoid leading questions um, because we don't want uh, leading questions to go against any possible like court stuff down the track. But we do want to make space for um, 
conversations around safety and around allowing the child or young person in your life to feel like they can disclose what's going on for them. Um, So it could be as simple as um, talking to them about the changes that they've noticed and wondering if there's anything that they want to share and just keeping really open questions um, and, and being a listening ear. Like we said before, I can't say it enough times really listen and believe them and hear them and act from there and then act get support in Victoria well in every state in Australia but especially in Victoria and I know that system pretty well but we have free sexual assault services so if there has been a recent sexual assault these sexual assault services can attend um, and provide support to families and children. Uh, there is also counselling attached to all of those programs as well, and they're free, so there is no cost. Um, and in other states, there's also free services. I don't know what they look like, but there is free services in every state. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, and I think the other thing is, if and it comes back to that question, you know, I don't know what to do. Is this something yep. I call triple zero for? Do I call the non-emergency police line? What do I do? There are services that you can call and ask for help and they will tell you yeah. what the best course of action is. And that way it's not up to you. You're not the one making a decision. Yes. You've sought yeah. advice and this was a devi- the advice you're acting on. Um, yeah. And I would definitely also say we are all our as adults in this world who want to protect children. Some people have nefarious um, 
you know, they, they, people want to not be protective of children or think that what they're doing is, but I think for the most part, most people want to protect people. And I think it's important that we call it out. And, you know, worst case scenario is, you know, maybe somebody gets child protective services involved and child protective services come to the home and do an assessment and there actually isn't abuse happening. Yeah. That's in my mind, the best case scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Because think about suspiciously. (laughs) Yeah. How How suspicious. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Like, I'm sorry I had a suspicion, but you know, like how hard is it to prove sexual assault in cases where we know it has happened? So then people are not going to be wrongly accused of something that didn't occur. Um, and I, I think that, that that is a huge myth and misconception that um, people are often mischarged um, or sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, particularly in, in relation to sexual assault. I think that that was probably one of the most overrepresented myths I saw um, was people believing that um, particularly women would make up stories about sexual assault. And I'm not saying that they don't exist, but in terms of statistically, people are more likely to falsify a report about a home invasion or a theft of their motor vehicle than they are to falsify a report of sexual assault. I can tell you, having supported in like a decent number of survivors that have gone through that process, there are not an overrepresentation of people that want to go through that horrendous system when that has not happened. It is not a positive experience. There are supports there to help you through that process. And I don't want to put anyone off from going through that process um, because it can be really beneficial for a lot of people, but it is not an easy process by any means. Um, and it is not something that it's easy to convince the court system of, um, that it has happened. So there needs to be evidence, and that is the police's job to find that, that people are not going to be falsely accused of a crime they didn't commit. No, especially without evidence. And I think, you know, we do see those one in a million kind of cases, and a lot of them do sit in America, but, you know, shit happens. But what I will say as well is, you know, when I started to study criminology, one thing I didn't realise was or didn't think about too much is where the data is coming from. And it's interesting yeah. to see that those statistics, I think it was 2% of allegations yeah. are false. Well, it's interesting yeah. what actually indicates a false report. Is it a proven mm. false report? Most of the time, that's actually not the case. Most of yeah. the time, the data that is filled with people who are in inverted commas or inverted quotes, you know, falsely accusing somebody is somebody who's withdrawn yeah. their statement. statement. So somebody who has come forward, who has started to go through the legal process and decided, you know what, this is going to be really hard. I don't have the support. I don't think that I want to. Um, The lawyer has advised me that this isn't a good idea. My parents have moved away, whatever it might be. That withdrawal can be listed as a false accusation, which it isn't. It's a withdrawal. It's a very different thing. And I'll be the first to say I have been ignorant in the past, even as a survivor myself from when I was 14, there was another case that was in my area when I grew up and I had gone through the court system and I was a child. My experience was very different because my mum or my parents were the ones leading the charge in that way. As a survivor, I was kind of protected from that because I was a child. 
the yeah. people that went through this case ended up withdrawing their thing. And I had said yeah. literally out loud to people, yeah. well, they must have made it up then because you wouldn't withdraw it if that's what you'd actually been through. I know. And that's the most ignorant thing anybody could ever say. And I know that now from having done a lot of work and educated myself on the topic. But I think that's where the misconception comes from, that you wouldn't withdraw it if it was true. And if you did withdraw it, it means it was false. Yeah, which you and I both know couldn't be further from the truth, that so many people just cannot go through the process for whatever reason, and that's totally okay, that's your right, is that you are able to make a statement and then withdraw it. Um, The other thing, we might be getting slightly off topic here, but just to flag on this is that if you wanted to report a a disclosure of sexual assault to the police, at least in Victoria. I don't know about legislations in other states, I'm sorry. But in Victoria, you can ask for a statement of no disclosure, which means that it goes on your file and all the evidence and the detail is kept there until you decide you are ready to do this. The police um, might encourage you, obviously, to do more than just a statement of no disclosure. It's your right that you can ask for that. Um, and what it means and the benefit of it, I guess, is if it's something that has happened recently and you're not sure what you want to do and you're not sure if you want to press charges, this is only for adults, not for children. Sorry, that gets taken out of the picture. But um, for adults, you have a choice around making this statement and the benefit of doing it um, when it's recently happened is that a lot of the details are a lot fresher in your mind, which means clearer um, evidence, which means better outcomes long term. So if you decided in 20, 30 years or even six months that you wanted to come back and pursue that as a process through the law courts, that um, it can be considered favourable because you've already made that statement back closer to when it happened um, and means that it gets to sit there. And the same with your DNA kits. So if you had a DNA kit done, which can be sometimes referred to as a rape kit, um, they are stored for 50 years and they don't have to be acted on. So you can ask to have a forensic medical examination done and it can just be stored away for 50 years that the police don't have to act on it. Just a little side note. Yeah, I think... Uh, it was my case with ba- my interview with Bellamy, um, which was really interesting because when she de- decided in her process that she didn't want to go forward with the with pressing charges, I think they had said if she withdraws now, then they would destroy the evidence. So we still haven't yes. done any investigation into that. And I think maybe this might be newer law. There might be previous or historic things that might not have happened or things that have been done wrong. But what you just said, yes, definitely is the case for Victoria right now, which yes. is an amazing support system as well. And what it does too is it is there. Say if the offender is known, um, yes, that is there as additional information should another victim survivor come forward. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we've touched on so many things and I'm so grateful that we've been able to have this chat because I know that so many people listening to this will have experienced the same things. Yes, um, there are a few things I'd like to touch on. So I'll just kind of run through them. They're not um, cohesive, but bear with me. Um, so I think the another really common myth is around stranger danger and that that is the most likely time that we're going to be sexually abused. Um, 
it's not true. <laughs> Statistically, it's like 90% of perpetrators are somebody who is known to us. Um, and the reason for that is, I guess, level of access. Um, but also what we were talking about before in terms of grooming is that uh, these people can groom the entire systems around us Um such an effect where we're isolated and they're able to have um, a more, pa- more power and control, essentially. Um, I-, I think we've probably touched on that yeah. enough in other aspects. Yeah, but I think it's good to also highlight, like, that's not just a child, you know, like when no, we're talking about no, that, and in, even in the case of Larry Nassar, right, these, these are yes. obviously children or young adults who I, and it is what you said before, that overarching umbrella of power and control over somebody else in in, um, a position of power as a sports doctor. Um, But it could be, you know, a teacher. It could be um, a loved one. It could be a friend. It could be a boyfriend. It could be anybody. And you're right. And I think it's it's really important that we stop saying stranger danger because we stop looking at the people that are closest to us and those are the people we need to be looking at the most. And I I love this thing that um, Jim Clementi, who's a former FBI profiler who specializes in child Mm. abuse cases, he always says this, and it really struck home to me about where I sit and what my values are. Um, and, And just, I think, things to look for. If somebody wants to spend more time with your child than you do, Yes. That's a red flag. And that just one thought prompted me in a lot of aspects of my life to think about the way that we allow people to interact with us and the people yeah. that we love and what we accept. And I think that that was just something that really struck me just on that topic. Yeah, no, I think that that's great. Um, uh, and I guess also is that these people will go to great lengths <laughs> It's it's often not the tokenistic things that we think, like they're going to just rock up and be creepy. These people might groom through presence. They might groom through offering support at a really vulnerable time. They're going to mask themselves as really great people because that is how they get away with it. If they showed up as the people that they actually are, they wouldn't get away with the crimes that they perpetrate. So, yeah, I and like for adults, that could be, you know, your work colleague. It, it it literally could be anybody that is commonly known to you. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that was just something I wanted to touch on. All right, yeah, so the second one I just wanted to touch on is probably more in relation to therapy. But uh, another common misconception, I guess, is that um, – that you'll never recover from trauma or that you'll never, that sexual assault is going to define your life for the rest of your life. And something that I often talk about in my private practice is the term integrate uh, because I, I personally don't really like the term healing or recovery because that feels quite linear and it also feels not representative of an actual journey of a survivor. So the word I use is integrate in terms of integrating the experience that we have had to be able to then continue with our life. But that story or experience has never gone anywhere. It's just been integrated into our life as we go forwards. Whereas healing and recovery feels like it's like, oh, yeah, we've gone over the speed hump. Now we're all good. (laughs) And that's actually not often the case. So, yeah. yeah. That's the first time I've heard that word and I've said on this podcast before you know 
I don't like healing in that sense. It sounds fluffy. I do use the term yeah. healing journey and it does. Yeah. It sounds fluffy. And I always have yeah. to reiterate that there is no pinnacle point where you wake up one day and you're like, oh, hallelujah, I'm healed. Like that doesn't yeah. happen like that. It is yeah. finding a way to deal with the trauma in your life in different ways and how to manage the things that you are dealing with in a better way. And do you get to a point where they affect you negatively less and less? And I think yes. that way of saying integration as opposed to healing does make more sense to me. And I'm really, really happy that you just told me that word because that's really <laughs> resonated with me because I hate, I fucking hate using the word healing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's only something that I really kind of come to terms with maybe this year because I, I had been quite opposed to the other words that are often used in relation to family violence and sexual assault. Um, but this was something that I kind of stumbled across and I was like, no, this is for me. Like this is, this feels aligned with uh, the experiences of the people that I've worked with, that it is about that integration. Like you said, it's about how do I integrate the experience that I've had so that this doesn't define my life anymore, but that the impacts become less and less, it is still going to be there though. And acknowledging that and coming to terms with that is often part of the process, which is why I talk about integrating, I guess. Um, so my statement around that would be you can reintegrate the trauma that you've experienced without having to relive the trauma or be re-traumatized. So uh, often, I guess there's a misconception that when you go to therapy, that you will have to relive word for word or recount your experience of family violence, sexual assault, any trauma. That is not essential unless that is important to you. And being empowered to have that choice, right? So um, if you find the right therapist for you who is not just trauma-informed but trauma-led, that they will not expect that from you. And you can ask them, <laughs> what is your expectation? Is your expectation that I'm going to come in and talk about my traumatic experiences word for word if that is not going to be of benefit to me? And my response to that would be no. <laughs> I don't want you to relive that experience because if it's not going to be of benefit to you, then it's not of benefit to me. I don't need to hold that story because it's not mine. <laughs> it's yours. And I want to find a way to help you integrate that without having to relive it and be re-traumatized. Um, so yeah, that's a little side note. Yeah. Um, I think that's really important as well to really highlight for people that you can get across a point without living, reliving it. And, yes. you know, how many conversations even on this podcast that we've had, and I always say to the guests that come on, it's up to you how much detail that you go into. And some people are really comfortable or, or happy to explore the discomfort of those moments to share what yes. it is. Some people want to gloss over the details a little bit more, but it doesn't take away in any way from you understanding what actually happened. So putting no. that into perspective yeah. for you, it's just a different layer of storytelling. You know, you can still get yes. an insight into something that's going on without, yeah, going into that extreme detail. I'd never thought about it like that. That's really great. Yeah. Instead, we can talk about the fact that there was a sexual assault and these are the impacts. For so many people, like for the majority of the people that I have worked with, I never have actually heard the details of what happened in their sexual assault because it wasn't relevant to their integration journey. Yeah. Yep. Um, 
the next one was just to touch on uh, going back to parents and, and um, I guess some of the things that we can do as a preventative is I think for me is about teaching um, body awareness and body boundaries um, from a very young age. I think a lot of parents are quite hesitant to start this and there are some misconception around sexualizing children and that if we teach them um, about their body parts, like teaching them to name their body parts, vulva and penis, that they will then um, become sexually promiscuous from a young age it's factually incorrect there is no data that actually supports that if anything there is actually data to suggest that the more information and the more education we provide from a young age the less likely people are to make consensual choices to engage in sex until much older and also the rates of teenage or young um, children falling pregnant declines so if anything, it actually has a very positive impact. Um, yes. So I would encourage people to be talking about anatomical names, not butterfly and PP. Um, and the reason for that is because if a child discloses at school and their name for vulva is biscuit and they say to the teacher, uh, somebody touched my biscuit, the teacher says, don't bother me with that insignificant stuff. Off you go, go play. And what the child's actually done is I've just disclosed something really important. Mm. The teacher doesn't care. Okay, it mustn't be important. Off I go. I also think that it it trivialises the anatomy part as well because you're telling them that it's a bad word by naming it something that it is. You're saying this is not okay for you to say. This is uncharted territory. And I've had the conversation with a few people as well in my life where, you know, you start talking about these things and then the kids have questions. But I think parents need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because this isn't a conversation you can just have once. And if your child, no matter what their appendage or not appendage is, it's important for you to be comfortable with telling them, you know, if it's red or it itches or if somebody touches you there exactly what is important about that it's empowering that child and you know you can teach children about sex without sexualizing it you can teach children about boundaries without sexualizing it but if you think that you are just going to have a one-off birds and bees conversation with somebody you're not building a child that's educated enough in this world to know about consent whether it be a typically male person navigating the world of sex and porn as somebody who is going to enter the sexual world and expect to be respectful of their sexual partners or a typically woman who is usually submissive to understand that her body and she has right that she has rights over um, and the boundaries of consent on that level and I think you're exactly right and you know another Jim Clementi thing I might be obsessed I love him (laughs) is you know he makes this analogy but it these are things that make sense to me i know that we've all got different ways that we learn yeah. but he said you know if you're teaching a child to cross the road you will hold their hand you will look both ways with them and you'll cross the road yeah. with them and you will do that with them 150,000 times until you are confident that they understand the concept and how to do it and everything now you're not going to do yeah. that with sex but you are going to do that with boundaries, with body parts, with things like that, because it's important to continue to do it. The same way that Mm -hmm. you're going to teach them to write the letter A, repetition. They're not going to learn Mm -hmm. it after the first time. 
And I think you need to be uncomfortable, uh, comfortable with being uncomfortable and make sure that this topic becomes something that's comfortable because otherwise you are raising the problem basically. Yeah. But I guess also that if you don't provide that information, children will go elsewhere to look for it. And like you said before, pornography is a really big challenge for the world at the moment because children on average around the age of eight are starting to come into contact with pornography. If we think about that from a developmental point of view, children's brains are not fully developed and therefore they are then developing these neural pathways about what sex is. They don't have the cognitive capacity to understand what they're seeing. So they just understand the violence and they link those things and they're going to create those patterns as they go through into adulthood. Yeah. Uh, so I guess, yeah, coming back to what we were talking about, that, that that is super important because if we are not providing that education, children will seek that out in other ways. And if you don't want to tell your child that information, I can guarantee you there are other people on the internet that will. And they might not have the very lovely, you know, intentions that you would want to have with protecting your child, you know, and that, that's the sad case of the fact that it, of what it is. And that comes down yeah. to teaching your children as well about boundaries on the internet and about predators and about awareness about things like that. And I will go, and I think I've um, recommended this book before. I thought it was great. It's called The Well-Armored Child by Joel Castiex. And it's about having these conversations Um, So I think if you do have children or children in your life and protecting them and giving them the, the tools to protect themselves to a degree and protecting themselves, not physically, but by being Mm -hmm. able to tell you things and to resist things like grooming. um, I think it's a really great resource. Yeah. Um, The other two things were just very quickly to touch on. I think we've covered this already, but um, when you hear they didn't mean it, they're such a nice guy, like, oh, typically guys, obviously, um, statistically, but uh, they didn't mean it, you know, oh, well, it was an accident. There is no part about sexual assault that is an accident. Let's be clear. It's about power and control. It is not a sexual act. It is not actually about, like, it being a sexual act. It is about exerting power and control over somebody else. That's what it's about. Um, And it is not your job to fix them. So I guess that's just a very quick point I just wanted to make. And also just to touch on very briefly is um, something we didn't cover before in terms of victim survivors is that there is also layers to victim survivors. There is primary, what we consider primary victims, and there is also secondary victim survivors. So that can look like um, being a sibling of a child who was sexually abused and what are the impacts for that child um, and being a parent of a child who was sexually abused. So there are all the multifaceted layers of impact. All of those are worthy of accessing support. If you are impacted, you deserve to access support. Um, There is a place for you. Um, I guess that was just a very quick thing that I wanted to cover off on. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree with that more as well, because a lot of people, especially now who, um, you know, I had a friend when I was going through my sexual assault, she was my key confidant. I told her everything and I would call her at all hours of the night crying on the phone to her, which would have been so difficult for her to listen to consistently. But I'm sure that in her mind, she's thinking she's not the one who needs help. I am. But how hard is that for her to navigate and deal with as well, to try and be there and hold space for somebody who needs the help 
you also need yeah. help to to help support yeah, them to too. sort that person yeah. yeah yeah and that you are valid and you deserve a space in a therapeutic um counseling space if that's what you want if that's what you need because you're impacted there is space for you over to you for the the rest of the questions yeah I think the key one that I just had um the last one was from um somebody and I actually had this asked for me from a lot of different people specifically men who Uh don't and I think it's coming out of lockdown we are still in lockdown now I think we've spent nearly a full year in Melbourne in lockdown. Um, I'm Metro, so I've been in lockdown and you're in regional. So you're not as locked down, but you've just gone back in. (laughs) So it's it's difficult. And I was actually listening. I know I go off track all the time, um, but I was listening to a pink song the other day and it just made so much sense to me. It was, you know, it's an old song and it's called Leave Me Alone, I'm Lonely. And I'm like, that is, I live alone. And I have been yeah. becoming more and more isolated in my own self of, you know, things are opening up tomorrow. We can yeah. go and see somebody for a picnic. And my first thought was, is that what Ooh. we do? <laughs> these are like, you know, really legitimate feelings. And, and the questions I had were specifically around not being a survivor and seeking help. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll read this one. I'm not a survivor and I've had a bad experience with a previous mental health counsellor. Also, the wait times are really long at the moment for accessing services in Melbourne specifically. So we know that it's waiting lists that are really extensive. What would be your advice to somebody who has not connected with their previous counsellor and and is looking to seek help now but is worried about the, the long wait times? Yeah. I guess firstly, just the first part of that, apologizing, um, just to name that uh, I'm sorry that that has happened because nobody deserves to have a really terrible experience with a health provider um, and that health providers, just like anybody, should be held to a level of professional standards. And if you feel like um, that has been violated, that you do have rights and options around reporting that, it obviously won't help you in terms of being able to access help. But I think sometimes that empowerment process around understanding what your rights and options are in terms of you have a right to report that health professional for not adhering to those rules, if that's the case. Um, In terms of wait times, yes, wait times are incredibly challenging at the moment. I think that um, we have seen an increase in people seeking mental health support um, since lockdown. We have not statistically seen an increase in suicide rates but we have seen an increase in suicidal ideation so thoughts of suicide and people seeking help um, which is really great that people are seeking help but it obviously does mean that we have then people who aren't able to access the service time in a timely manner which all people should I believe be able to do that Unfortunately, the funding is not there. Um, So I would encourage you to get creative. So is it about, um, because there are definitely services out there that are still accepting clients. And I think the one thing that has come from this COVID world is that we've gotten uh, a bit more flexible and we can be a bit more creative in terms of accessing services online or via telephone. So, you know, there are a bunch of different websites that you could have a look on you know, for example, psychology today, and you can put in your suburb, but you can also tick that you're looking for online or um, telephone based counseling, and it will show you 
anybody in Australia who is offering that support. Uh, you know, some another website might be Health Direct, which is a, a government-run website. So there are options, I guess, in terms of service like providers they're just maybe barriers to accessing them because they're not face-to-face or there might be fees attached so if that if that's a barrier and you can't access it because of the associated costs then I would be thinking about how can you get yourself on a wait list so at least you're waiting for something (laughs) so that you're working towards that Uh, and then looking at okay how can I connect with people around me how can I draw on supports how can I create new supports how can I have new connections can I increase the level of self-care and I don't mean tokenistic self-care I mean genuine self-nourishment like what actually nourishes my soul Um, can I increase some of those things what can I be doing that's going to uh, allow me that sense of feel good Um, and And just being really trying to think outside of the box (laughs) because uh, COVID has certainly put restrictions on what we're able to do, but there are still things inside this box if we get a bit creative. Absolutely. And I think that's a really great way of looking at things. Um, Also, I guess if you are feeling like you can't wait and you are feeling like there is a timeliness that you need to access services, then there are crisis support services that are available to you 24-7 nationwide. Um, so if you are in Australia, some of those are 1-800-RESPECT or Lifeline, yep. which is one three one 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 four. I will provide a list of, of a lot of different resources that are really wonderfully positioned to be able to help you in the time of need. But I would reiterate what you've just said. I know that a wait list can be daunting and a barrier, yep. but if you're not on the wait list, then you're not on the wait list. So you're best yep. off finding something and getting in. Um, I guess what you said as well, which is I find really interesting, and I think this might be a barrier, especially for a lot of men in the way that they see um, psychology services. And I think it was just an interesting thing that I had so many men message me saying I've had a bad experience. I think maybe they've just not gelled with that person. Um, Is maybe seeking to get on a wait list with somebody or seeing if you can have that initial phone call, like you said. So you've got a 15-minute phone consult can you yeah. get in on a phone, like a 15-minute phone consult to see if this person might be the right fit for you and then get on the yeah. wait list with them instead of getting on the wait list and realising maybe that they're not the person for you? So I would yeah. encourage you to even look into that. Um, yeah. Or even just doing some research online because I know that there's a lot of therapists who won't offer that because they're just slammed and they don't have the time. And I guess my practice is a little bit different in that I want it to be trauma-led. So if people aren't practising from that framework, it might look different for them. Um, But you can research and kind of... uh, (laughs) A few people laugh when I say this, but I think about it in terms of like dating for a therapist, right? Obviously it's not dating. We're not blurring professional boundaries, but essentially that's what you should be doing is that it shouldn't just be, I'm going to accept this person because that's all I can get. I'm going to do some research and find what's going to be the best fit for me. What do I need? Get clear on what is that? And and sites like Psychology Today that I spoke about have filter buttons. So you can choose the gender of your therapist. You can choose the um, cultural background. You can choose the religion. You can choose the service delivery modes they offer, whether that's phone, face-to-face, telehealth. Um, you can choose 
the languages they speak, you can choose like a whole bunch of different criteria, the specialist um, areas that they work in. So if there is a particular area that you're wanting support with, you can tick all of those boxes and you can, it will generate the people that match that criteria. So um, making the most of services like that. And, and like you said, if it is of a timely nature and you can't wait, the other avenue I'd be encouraging you to um, access is your GP, going to your GP and having a conversation and being tra- very transparent about where you're at. And if it is a matter of um, needing to get in sooner rather than later, hopefully you have a good relationship with your GP and you could ask them to be doing some advocacy on your behalf um, around because a lot of places do have crisis appointments so that they can get in a lot sooner. Um, But it is something to think about, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really good point. You could have that medical professional call you and see if they can bump the thing for you if you are really feeling in need at the moment. The other thing I would say as well is connecting with your friends and talking to your friends about this because, you know, one thing I find you know, I had a really good GP growing up. She was incredible. We talked about sex. We talked about everything. I felt really comfortable with her. A lot of my friends ended up going and seeing her for things like pap smears because she was so comforting. She was like a mum, and she explained everything and you felt very safe in her presence. And I think that's the same thing with the right psychologist or the right therapist or whatever you're seeking is if your friends have gone maybe through and done the hard yards and gone and jumped over a few hurdles and done the research, they might find the person that fits the demographic for them. And if they are your friend and somebody that you've, you know, been in your life for a long or short time, that might be more likely the avenue that you want to go down. You know, that might be somebody that you might also want to seek. So I think also seek your own connections into what's available out there. And I think that's an interesting thing that I've been noticing a lot lately is, friends who are seeing the same therapist because that's where their values, I guess, align. Yeah. I like, for example, having people like you've just done even with me now, giving me words for things and explaining things to me scientifically. Some people want to have more of an interaction where they're buddies and they're talk they say fucking shit and they're, you know, talking about these are the boys and, you know, because they can relate to that and that's fine, but that's not what I would want. But, you know, it goes to the same thing. So I think that's, it's an incredible distinction to make. And I think it's really good. I think, yes, I want to say thank you so much for coming on, dispelling these myths, talking so candidly about counselling, talking so candidly about everything that we have. I think this conversation will specifically be really wonderful to help so many people out there um, who are survivors, who have been victimized in their life who are going through trauma and and also people who aren't, who are just struggling with their mental health or who are supporting somebody who is going through a trauma. Uh, Honestly, the most important thing that we can do, I I think just linking back to that last point is just around um, the current state of the world is incredibly isolating. And the best thing that we can do is find ways to connect. And that could be connection within yourself and your body. That could be with other people or your community. But connection is actually essential to our survival. So when we're thinking about the world that we're living in at the moment, that's so incredibly isolated and so devoid of connection, uh, what's actually happening is it's starting to undermine our very fundamental, like, the core things that we need to exist. So finding ways to combat that with connection is going to be incredibly important. 
So yeah, now more than ever, prioritize yourself and the relationships that you have with other people or your community. I just want to highlight as well that um, we have discussed a lot of very traumatic things at this moment. I did mention some crisis support services that uh, earlier, I will link them in the show notes for this episode. I will also link for listeners how to connect with you specifically. Um, so if you have been listening and you do want to connect with Gemma, you don't have to be in Melbourne, but she is based in Creswick, uh, which is near Ballarat in Victoria. Um, but I will also link the uh, website and her Instagram as well if you do want to check in and maybe get some advice on next steps as well. So thank you so much for listening to Reclaim Me. Thank you for coming on, Gemma. I think it's great. Um, I think this is going to be a really great episode. It's going to help a lot of people. So thank you again. Thank you for the opportunity to share with everybody. And um, yeah, I hope that everyone gets something out of it. Thanks, Maddie, you legend. (laughs) Great. Thanks for listening. (laughs) This is Reclaim Me signing out. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.